Father, once more I lift my heart together with these brothers and sisters and ask that you would come and help me to speak your truth and help us to hear it. I pray that you'd protect us now from Satan. We lift the shield of faith in your glorious promise that you are triumphant over him and that you surround us like a shield and that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And we ask for the fullness of your Holy Spirit and that he would overflow with joy and truth that we might be made holy and strong and courageous and free and that your name might be exalted in our lives from this day forth and forevermore. Your name and your renown is the desire of our souls. So I pray that you would manifest the glory of that name and the magnificence of that renown so that it will be irresistible to our soul's desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to torch the glacier and to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, Yesterday, I tried to make the point that God does everything he does for the glory of his name. God magnifies God. The most passionate heart in all the universe for God is God's heart. That was the main point. Passion 97 in my heart and my mind is about God's passion for God. Everything he does from creation to consummation, he does with a view to displaying and upholding the glory of his name. And the second point subordinately, yesterday, was this is not unloving. For God to exalt himself in this way is not unloving to you. And the reason it's not is because to know God and to be swept up into the praises of God is what satisfies the human soul. Thou dost show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. And therefore, if God's exalting himself to the degree that we can see him for who he is, satisfies our souls then God is the one being in all the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the essence of love. You may not copy him in this. To the degree that you exalt yourself for another person to enjoy, 
You are hateful, not loving, because you distract them from the one being who can satisfy their souls. Therefore, we may not imitate God in his godness. God is the one and only and absolutely unique being in all the universe for whom self-exaltation is the essence and the foundation of love. It has to be this way if he is God. We might want him to love like humans love by making others central, but he can't. And be God. He is infinitely valuable in himself. There is none besides God. Therefore, he is, to put it bluntly, stuck with being magnificent and glorious and all-sufficient and self-sufficient without any need of you whatsoever. And this is the foundation of grace. If you try to make yourself the center of grace, it ceases to be grace. God-centered grace is biblical grace. My delight is not in God making me the center of the universe. My delight is in God being the center of the universe forever and drawing me up into his fellowship. To see him, know him, enjoy him, treasure him, be satisfied in him all the days of eternity. That was yesterday's message. Now today, if that's true, if that's biblical, there's a stunning implication for your life. And it is this, when you leave this place, you go back to your churches or your campuses, what you should do is make it your vocation to be as happy as you possibly can be. In God. So my call to you now, in the name of God Almighty, is that you might make it your eternal vocation to pursue your pleasure with all the might that God mightily inspires within you. My problem in life and your problem in life is not that you are pursuing your pleasure when you ought to be doing your duty. That is not my or God's or the Bible's assessment of your problem. C.S. Lewis had it exactly right in that life-changing sermon called The Weight of Glory when he said, our problem is that we are far too easily Pleased, not that we are pursuing our pleasure too eagerly. We are like children fooling around with mud pies in the slums because we cannot imagine what a holiday at the sea is like. 
Our problem is that we are clutching to ourselves tin idols when gold reality stands before us. We are far too easily pleased. The problem with the world is not hedonism. It's the failure of hedonism to go for what is truly satisfying. That's my point this morning. And the implication of that, if that's true, is that you should get up in the morning and like George Mueller say before he goes out and does anything, I must have my heart happy in God or I will be of no use to anybody. I'll use them and try to get them to satisfy my cravings and my vacancies. If you want to be a person of love, if you want to be released to lay down your lives for other people, you must make it your aim to be happy in God. Now, that's today's message. We are far too easily pleased. We have settled for such small, short-lived inadequate, non-satisfying pleasures that our capacities, test yourself now, our capacities for joy have so shriveled up that you know what we've done? We have made joyless duty the essence of virtue so as to conceal our untransformed hearts that cannot be moved by God. You see how escapist that is? I am on a campaign this morning against the Stoics and Immanuel Kant, the philosopher of the Enlightenment, who basically, in a nutshell, said, to the degree that you seek your benefit in any moral act, you diminish its virtue. Fie on that hell. It is not in the Bible, and it destroys worship, it destroys virtue, it destroys courage, it destroys God-centeredness everywhere. And if it elevates man, the virtuous one who does his duty without any view of God's satisfying his soul. Fire on it, and may it be gone from our hearts forever. I'm on a campaign against what hangs in the evangelical air. I got on this campaign about 25 years ago. And I've been on it ever since, trying to raise my family in it and build a church on it and write books about it and try to live it. And little by little, the objections come. It's the way you grow. Several of you have said to me that you feel like your, your world is being 
turn by this conference. Paradigms are being shaken. Copernican revolutions are in the offing. And that's just the way you start changing. It may take 15 years. Objection after objection. So 1968, I start seeing some of these things with the help of Dan Fuller and C.S. Lewis and Jonathan Edwards and King David and St. Paul and Jesus Christ. And the way my mind works is that boom, 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 one objection after the other comes up. And you, you cringe and then you go to the Bible and you weep and you cry and you struggle and you ask and you pray and you talk. And little by little, the objections refine the vision. Number one. Does the Bible really teach that you should pursue your joy with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? Or is that just John Piper's clever, homiletical way of getting attention for something else? Objection number two. What about self-denial? Didn't Jesus say, if you would come after me, let him deny himself? Objection number three. Doesn't this... Put too much emphasis on emotion. You're talking about satisfaction and happiness and pleasure. Isn't Christianity essentially a matter of the will whereby we make commitments and decisions? Objection number four. What becomes of the noble concept of serving God as a duty when it's hard and you don't feel like it? Objection number five, I don't get it. If I were to do what you're commending me to do this morning, I can't see that this whole conference would be shot in the foot because I would become the center then and not God. Let's answer them one at a time. Number one, does the Bible really teach that you should... Pursue your joy and your pleasure. My answer is yes, and it does so in at least four ways. Number one, with commandments like Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. This is not a suggestion. This is a commandment. If you believe thou shalt not commit adultery is something you should obey, then you should also obey, delight yourself in the Lord. Or Psalm 32, 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Or Psalm 100, Serve the Lord with, tell me, gladness. That's a commandment. Serve the Lord with gladness to the degree that you are indifferent, Allah, Immanuel, Kant, and the Stoics, to the degree that you are indifferent to whether you serve the Lord with gladness, you are indifferent to God. He told you, you must serve the Lord with gladness. Or Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. And they're all over the Bible. We're talking commandments. That's the first way the Bible teaches this. The second way the Bible teaches this is by threats. Jeremy Taylor once said, 
I thought it was clever when I heard it. Didn't think it was biblical. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. It was clever, I thought. It's not clever. It's a quotation from Deuteronomy 28.47. And it's devastating. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy in him. I mean, is that a warrant for hedonism or what? Is that a warrant for making it your life vocation to pursue your joy in God with all your might? Here's the third way that the Bible teaches this. Namely, by presenting saving faith as essentially being satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus. For example, Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who would draw near to God must believe two things. One, that God is. Two, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. If you would please God, you must have faith. What is faith? Coming to one who is precisely with the deep conviction that he's going to reward me for coming. If you don't believe that, or if you go to God for any other reason, you do not please God. Or take John 6.35. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Mark that. He who believes never thirsts. What does that mean about faith? What is faith? Faith in John's theology is a coming to Jesus for the satisfaction of our souls such that nothing else can satisfy. That's faith. Faith is not something else than what I'm talking about. I'm unpacking basic Christianity in language that you're less familiar with. The fourth way that the Bible teaches this is by defining sin as the insanity of forsaking the pursuit of your pleasure in God. Sin is the insanity of forsaking the pursuit of your pleasure in God. Here's the text. Jeremiah 2.13, 2, 2.12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Tell me, what is evil? Tell me the definition of evil from Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. 
the definition of evil that appalls the universe. That causes the angels of God to say, no, it can't be. What is it? It is looking at God, the fountain of all satisfying living water, and saying, no, thank you. And turning to the television, sex, parties, booze, money, prestige, house in the suburbs, vacation, new computer program, and saying, yes, that's insane. And it causes, it causes all heaven to be appalled according to Jeremiah 2.12. In those four ways, at least, the Bible says, John Piper is preaching truth this morning when he says, devote your life to the pursuit of your satisfaction in God. Objection number one, fell. Objection number two, what about self-denial? Didn't Jesus say in Mark 8.35, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Cross is a place where you die. It's a place of execution. It's not a cranky mother-in-law or a bad roommate or a disease in your bones. It's death to self so, Piper, you are heretical in calling us to pursue the satisfaction of our souls as a life vocation. I felt that. And then I read the rest of the verse. It just helps to read contexts. For he who would save his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will save it. What's the logic here? What's the Jesus logic in those verses? The logic is this. Oh, my disciples. Oh, my disciples. Don't lose your life. Don't lose your life. Don't throw your life away, young people. Save your life. Save your life. How? How Jesus lose it. I don't get it. I don't get it, Jesus. What I mean is, my disciples, my loved ones, lose your life in the sense that you lose everything but me. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. But if it dies, I mean, it, it doesn't bear fruit. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Die to the world. Die to prestige. Die to wealth. Die to sinful sex. Die to cheating to get ahead. Die to the need for people to approve you. Die and have me. Have me. I believe in self-denial. Believe me. I believe in self-denial. 
Deny yourself tin to have gold. Deny yourself sand to stand on a rock. Deny yourself brackish water to have wine. There is no ultimate self-denial, nor did Jesus ever mean it that way. I believe in self-denial. I believe in this word about Jesus, from Jesus. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found treasure hidden in a field. And in his joy, mark that, in his joy, he went and he sold everything he had to buy that field. You call that self-denial? Yes, he sold everything. He counted everything as refuse and rubbish that he might gain Christ. So yes, it is self-denial. And no, it's not self-denial. You get it? There is a self to be crucified. The self that loves the world should be crucified. But the new self that loves Christ above all things and finds satisfaction in him, don't kill that self. That's the new creation. Glut that self on God. Oh, I believe in self-denial. I believe in the self-denial that the rich young ruler couldn't understand and Jesus taught in that moment. You remember that story? It's an awesome story. Go sell everything you've got, young man, and come and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And he wouldn't do it. And so Jesus said to him, it is really hard for rich men to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel go through the eye of a needle than for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are absolutely stunned and they say, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with men, it is impossible. Nobody can have the heart I'm calling for on their own. But with God, he says, all things are possible. And then Peter pipes up. We left everything and followed you. What about us? We really sacrificed. And Jesus responds, I wish I knew the tone of his voice. He said, Peter, no one has left houses or mother or father or brothers or sisters or lands or children for my sake who will not receive back 100-fold mothers and sisters and brothers and lands and children in this life with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. You cannot sacrifice anything that will not be repaid to you a thousandfold. Don't pity yourself when your head gets chopped off for me. Yes, I believe in self-denial. 
I believe in denying myself everything that would stand in the way of my being satisfied fully in God. And that's, I believe, what the Bible means by self-denial. I believe that David Livingstone and Hudson Taylor, these great missionaries, were absolutely right to come to the end of their lives, having lost wives, having lost health, having lost everything except one thing, and say to Cambridge University students and elsewhere, I never made a sacrifice. That's right. I know what they mean. You know what they mean. And I believe Jim Elliot, who laid down his life in Ecuador as a young man, was absolutely right. Some of you have got it on your t-shirts, and more you ought to, to say, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what I believe about self-denial. So objection number two fell. Objection number three rose up. What about emotions? Aren't you making too much out of emotions? I mean, isn't Christianity essentially decision? Make a decision. Commitment of the will. Aren't emotions just tag-along, optional, icing on the cake? Don't heed your feelings. Your way of talking about Christianity, Piper, I think elevates emotions to an unbiblical place of prominence. Then I read the Bible. Helps to read the Bible when you're in an argument. And I saw we are commanded to feel joy. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord. We are commanded to feel hope. Psalm 42, 5. Hope in God. We are commanded to feel fear. Luke 12. Fear him who can cast both soul and body. Into hell. We are commanded to feel peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. We are commanded to feel zeal. Romans 12. Be aglow or literally boil in the spirit. Never flag in zeal. This is not optional. This is not icing. It's a commandment. Never flag in zeal. We are commanded to feel grief. Romans 12. Weep with those who weep. You don't have an option. You gotta weep. You gotta feel weeping for those who weep. We are commanded to feel desire. 1 Peter 2, 2. Earnestly, earnestly desire the sincere, the sincere spiritual milk of the word. It's not an option. You can't say, well, I can't turn desire on and off, so how can I obey this? So it can't really be a command. Wrong. Yes, 
You cannot turn these feelings on and off at will. No, they are still obligations. And therein lies our desperate condition that we heard about last night. Everything I'm telling you you're commanded to do right now, you cannot do in this moment by willpower or decision or commitment. You can only do it by miracle. Aren't you desperate? Isn't it a desperate thing to be told by Almighty God that you must do what you cannot do? But you ought to do if your heart were right, you would do. I tell you, you want to feel desperate. If last night didn't do it, this ought to do it. We are depraved and we are commanded. The list goes on. We're commanded to feel tender-heartedness. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. You can't just say, oh, forgiveness is just saying, I'm sorry. You've got to feel it. We're commanded to feel gratitude. Take a little child on Christmas morning. I got five kids and I've seen this happen to my dismay. The kid opens the box from grandma. It's black socks. Yuck. Black socks. No kid ever wants to get socks, let alone black socks for Christmas. And then you say, say thank you to your grandmother. And the kid, the kid says, thank you for the socks. It's not what the Bible's talking about. He can do that by willpower. He can do that. But he cannot feel gratitude for those socks by willpower. Neither can you feel gratitude for God. Or as it says in Ephesians 5.20, be thankful for everything. Well, there we're dead. We're just done for. Unless God... Almighty God works. Well, that's enough. The list goes on. Objection number three. I don't buy it. I don't believe I'm elevating affections and feelings and emotions higher than the Bible does. I think I'm reinstating them to where a decisionistic, commitment-laden, willpower, American, we-can-do-it religion dropped them. Because they're out of our control. Objection number four. What about the noble vision of serving God? Isn't it a duty to serve God? We even sang about it on lyrics. We're on the screen. Serving God. Doesn't sound like service. Your way of talking about Christianity, John, it just doesn't sound the same as service, dutiful, rising to the challenge of performing the will of God when it's hard. To which I have learned now to respond, let's look at a few texts that shape the metaphor of servanthood. All metaphors about your relationship to God, whether it's servant or son and daughter or friend, have elements in them which, if you stress them, 
will be false. And elements in them, which if you stress them, will be true. Now, what's false and what's true in the analogy of servanthood? The texts that help you separate the two so that you don't blaspheme when you serve are texts like Acts 17.25. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, but he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. God is not served, folks. Be careful. He is not served as though he needed you or your service. He doesn't. Or take a text like Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to be served. Watch out. Watch out. If you undertake to serve him, you cross his purpose. Perplexing, isn't it? Paul called himself the servant of the Lord in every letter, just about. And here, Acts 17, 25, Mark 10, 45, say, God is not served, and the Son of Man did not come to be served. There must be a kind of service that is evil and a kind of service that is good. What is the good service? The good service is 1 Peter 4.11. goes like this. Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies that in everything God may get the glory. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. You've got to find a way to worship, type papers, listen to lectures, drive a car, change a diaper, preach a sermon... In such a way that you are always the receiver. Because the giver gets the glory and the receiver gets the joy. Anytime we cross Acts 17.25... God is not served by human hands as though he were a receiver, as though he needed anything. We blaspheme. I gave the illustration yesterday to the, the, to the leadership group of uh, Matthew 6.24 about service. Where it says, you cannot serve two masters. For either you'll hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve God and money. So here, we're talking service. Service. How do you serve money? 
You do not serve money by meeting money's needs. You serve money by posturing your life relentlessly with all of your energy and time and effort to benefit from money. Your mind spins with how to make the shrewd investment, how to find the best deal, how to invest where it's low so that it'll go high. And you're consumed with how to benefit from money because money is your source. If that's true about the way you serve money, how then do you serve God? And it's exactly the same. You posture yourself and you maneuver your life and you devote energy and effort and time and creativity to positioning yourself under the waterfall of God's continual blessing so that he remains source. And you remain empty receiver. You remain the beneficiary. He remains the benefactor. You remain hungry. He remains the bread. You remain thirsty. He remains the water. You don't ever do a blasphemous role reversal on God. We've got to find a way to serve in the strength that God supplies. I am on the receiving end when I am serving. Otherwise, I put God in the position of a beneficiary. I become his benefactor. And now I am God. And there are many such religions in the world. When I was trying to decide whether to come down here to Austin or not, my question was, where's the waterfall of blessing moving? It moves. It's an unusual waterfall. Most waterfalls are stationary. The waterfall of grace and supply for ministry and service moves. So I was praying, Lord, I, I got lots to do this week. Tonight at my church, I'm going to get home at 6 today. Tonight at my church in Minneapolis, there's an all-night prayer meeting. My assistant John's with me here. He's got to lead worship in that thing. And I've got to lead the 12 to 1 a.m. hour of the eight hours of prayer. And I'm going to be there all night and lead communion service at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning in Minneapolis. This is not a good time to be in Austin, Texas. But I believe that God said the waterfall is moving to Austin. You want to be under it? Go to Austin. And I want to be under it more than I want to be anywhere in the world. Objection number four fell. Final objection. When all is said and done, Piper, aren't you making yourself central? You talk about pursuing your joy, your pleasure. You talk about duty, something else, service you've got to be careful about. It just sounds to me like you're just maneuvering and manipulating biblical language so that you can remain central. That would be the most devastating criticism of all, wouldn't it? 
Here's my answer. And I'll close with this. I've been married for 28 years as of the 21st of December. I love Noel a lot. We've been through a lot together. Really hard times and really good times. We've seen our teenage kids through some incredibly difficult years. I cry most easily when I think about my sons and my little girl. Suppose on December 21st, um, I came home with 28 long stemmed red roses behind my back and rang the doorbell at five o'clock, which I never do. It's my house. I go in. And Noel comes to the door, looks sort of funny why I would be ringing the doorbell. And I pull the roses out and I say, happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I say, it's my duty. Wrong answer. Let's back it up. Ding dong. Happy anniversary, Noel. Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? Nothing makes me happier than buying you roses. In fact, why don't you go change clothes because I've arranged for a babysitter and we're going to do something special tonight because there's nothing I'd rather do tonight than spend the evening with you. Right answer. Why? Why wouldn't she say, you are the most selfish Christian hedonist I ever met. All you ever think about is what makes you happy. Why? Nothing makes you happier than to spend the night with me. Selfish. Why don't you think about me sometime? What's going on here? Why is duty the wrong answer and delight the right answer? What's going on here? You got it? You get it? Here's, here's the reason. Here's what's going on right here. This is it, folks. If you get this, you got it. And I'm done and I can go back to Minneapolis and praise God. My wife is most glorified in me. When I am most satisfied in her. And if I try to, to change our relationship into a service relationship, into a duty relationship, where I do not pursue my pleasure in her, she will be belittled. And so will God. When you get to heaven and the Father looks at you and says, Why are you here? Why did you lay down your life for me? Suppose some of you, and this is going to happen, folks. Some of you are going to be martyrs in this room. Because it says in Revelation 6:11, Until the full number of the martyrs is filled up, the end will not come. And we won't reach the Muslim and Hindu worlds without martyrs. Some people in this room are going to lay down their lives for Christ and count their life 
rubbish that they might have King Jesus early. And you stand before him and he says, my, why are you here? You better not say it was my duty to come because I'm a Christian. You better say, where else would I want to go? To whom else could I turn? You are my soul's desire. That's what this conference is about. Unless I've read Louis Giglio's heart really badly. This conference is about two great things coming together in the 268 generation or the 26-8 of Isaiah. And it is the passion of God for His name and His renown. And the passion of my heart to be satisfied with all my desires. Those are two unshakable things in the universe. And what I hope you have seen is that they are one. Because God and His name and His renown are most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. Lord, do it. Please don't let it be just words. Please let it break like a waterfall of grace and insight and life-changing power and sweetness from the Holy Spirit upon these young people. That when they hear the challenge about their campuses tonight, and when they go to do warfare in prayer tomorrow, they will understand what this world and this universe are all about with a great God-centered God satisfying their hearts with Himself. Lord, do that, I pray, in the name of King Jesus who loved us and gave Himself for us.